Section 28 of A History of Our Own Times, Volume 4, by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 59, Reformation in a Flood, Part 1. On June 10th, 1870, men's minds were suddenly turned away from thought of political controversy by a melancholy announcement in the morning papers the irish land bill the question of national education the curiously ominous look of affairs in france where the emperor had just been obtaining by means of the plebiscite a new guarantee of order and liberty the terrible story of the capture and massacre of young english tourists by greek brigands in the neighbourhood of marathon these and many other exciting topics were forgotten for the hour and the thoughts of millions were suddenly drawn away to a country house near the gad's hill of shakespeare on the road to rochester where the most popular author of his day was lying dead on the evening of june eighth mr dickens became suddenly seized with paralysis he fell into an unconscious state and continued so until his death the evening after the news was sent all over the country on the tenth and brought a pang as of personal sorrow into almost every home dickens was not of an age to die he had scarcely passed his prime born early in february eighteen twelve he had not gone far into his fifty-ninth year in another part of this work an attempt has been made to do justice to dickens as a novelist here it is only necessary to record the historical fact of his death and of the deep impression that it made no author of our time came near him in popularity perhaps no english author ever was so popular during his own life to an immense number of men and women in these countries dickens stood for literature to not a few his cheery teaching was sufficient as philosophy and even as religion soon after his death as might have been expected a certain reaction took place and for a while it became the fashion to smile quietly at dickens teaching and his influence that mood too will have its day and will pass it may be safely predicted that dickens will be found to have made a firm place in english literature although that place will probably not be so high as his admirers would once have claimed for him londoners were familiar with dickens's personal appearance as well as with his writings and certain london streets did not seem quite the same when his striking face and energetic movements could be seen there no more it is likely that dickens overworked his exuberant vital energy his superb resources of physical health and animal spirits in work and play in writing and in exercising he was unsparing of his powers like the lavish youth with the full purse and gil blas he appeared to believe that his stock could never be spent men who were early companions of his and who had not half his vital power outlived him many years he was buried in westminster abbey although his own desire was to be laid quietly in rochester churchyard it was held that the national cemetery claimed him we cannot help thinking it a pity the claim was made all true admirers of scott must be glad that he rests in his dear and congenial dryborough most of the admirers of dickens 
would have been better pleased to think that he lay beneath the green turf of the ancient churchyard in venerable and storied rochester amid the scenes that he loved and taught so many others to love nothing in modern english history is like the rush of the extraordinary years of reforming energy on which the new administration had now entered mr gladstone's government had to grapple with five or six great questions of reform any one of which might have seemed enough to engage the whole attention of an ordinary administration the new prime minister had pledged himself to abolish the state church in ireland and to reform the irish land tenure system he had made up his mind to put an end to the purchase of commissions in the army recent events and experiences had convinced him that it was necessary to introduce the system of voting by secret ballot he accepted for his government the responsibility of originating a complete scheme of national education meanwhile there were many questions of the highest importance in foreign policy waiting for solution the american government did what every cool and well-informed observer must have known they would do they pressed for a settlement of the claims arising out of the damage done by the alabama and other southern cruisers which had been built in english dockyards and had sailed from english ports in the mid-career of the government the war broke out between france and prussia russia took advantage of the opportunity to insist that the treaty of paris must be altered by the cancelling of the clause which formally and in perpetuity refused to every power the right of having a fleet in the black sea each of these questions was of capital importance each might have involved the country in war it required no common energy and strength of character to keep closely to the work of domestic reform amid such exciting discussions in foreign policy all the while and with the war trumpet ringing for a long time in the ears of england mr forster's education bill may be said to have been run side by side with the irish land bill the government undertook a great and a much-needed work when it set about establishing a national system of elementary education the manner in which england had neglected the education of her poor children had long been a reproach to her civilization she was behind every other great nation in the world she was behind most countries that in no wise professed to be great prussia and nearly all the german countries were centuries in advance of her so were some if not actually all of the american states we have already shown in these pages by what pitiful patchwork of compromises and makeshift expedients england had been trying to put together something like a plan for the instruction of the children of the poor private charity was eked out in a parsimonious and miserable manner by a scanty dole from the state and as a matter of course where the direst poverty prevailed and naturally brought the extremest need for assistance to education there the wants of the place were least efficiently supplied for years the statesmanship of england had been kept from any serious attempt to grapple with the evil by the doctrine that popular education ought not to be the business of a government the idea prevailed that education conducted by the state would be something un-english something which might do very well for germans and americans and other such people but which was entirely unsuited to the manly independence of the true britain 
it therefore came about that more than two-thirds of the children of the country were absolutely without instruction one of the first great tasks which mr gladstone's government undertook was to reform this condition of things and to provide england for the first time in her history with a system of national education on february seventeenth eighteen seventy mr forster introduced a bill having for its object to provide for public elementary education in england and wales the basis of the measure was very simple but also very comprehensive mr forster proposed to establish a system of school boards in england and wales and to give to each board the power to frame by-laws compelling the attendance of all children from five to twelve years of age within the school district the government did not see their way to a system of direct and universal compulsion they therefore fell back on a compromise by leaving the power to compel in the hands of the local authorities existing schools were in many instances to be adopted by the bill and to receive government aid on condition that they possessed a certain amount of efficiency in education that they submitted themselves to the examination of an undenominational inspector and that they admitted a conscience clause as part of their regulations the funds were to be procured partly by local rate partly by grants from the treasury and partly by the fees paid in the paying schools there were of course to be free schools provided where the poverty of the population was such as in the opinion of the local authorities to render gratuitous instruction indispensable the bill at first was favourably received but the general harmony of opinion did not last long the task proved to be one of the most difficult that the government could have undertaken the whole body of the english and welsh nonconformists soon declared themselves in strong hostility to some of the bill's provisions mr forster found when he came to examine into the condition of the machinery of education in england that there was already a system of schools existing under the charge of religious bodies of various kinds the state church and the roman catholic church and other authorities these he proposed to adopt as far as possible into his scheme to affiliate them as it were to the governmental system of education but he had to make some concession to the religious principle on which such schools were founded he could not by any stroke of authority undertake to change them into secular schools he therefore proposed to meet the difficulty by adopting regulations compelling every school of this kind which obtained government aid or recognition to accept a conscience clause by means of which the religious convictions of parents and children should be scrupulously regarded in the instruction given during the regular school hours on this point the nonconformists as a body broke away from the government they laid down the broad principle that no state aid whatever should be given to any schools but those which were conducted on strictly secular and undenominational principles it ought to be superfluous to say that the nonconformists did not object to the religious instruction of children it ought not to be supposed for a moment that they attached less importance to religious instruction than any other body of persons their principle was that public money the contribution of citizens of all shades of belief 
ought only to be given for such teaching as the common opinion of the country was agreed upon the contribution of the jew they argued ought not to be exacted in order to teach christianity the protestant ratepayer ought not to be compelled to pay for the instruction of roman catholic children in the tenets of their faith the irish catholic in london or birmingham ought not to be called upon to pay in any way for the teaching of distinctively protestant doctrine therefore they said let us at any cost establish a strictly national and secular system in our public elementary schools let us teach there what we are all agreed upon and let us leave the duty of teaching religion to the ministers of religion and to the parents of the children about the truths of arithmetic and geography about spelling and writing we are all agreed let our common contributions be given to common instruction and let each denomination provide in its own way for the religious training of its young people this way of looking at the question left out of notice one most important element in the controversy the existence of large bodies of citizens who conscientiously objected to any school teaching which was divorced from religious instruction and who did not believe that there could be any education in the true sense without the influence of religion accompanying and inspiring it we shall not here discuss the relative worth of these two opposing and irreconcilable theories of public education the fact that they existed made it well-nigh impossible for the government to satisfy the demands of the nonconformists mr forster could not admit the principle for which they contended he could not say that it would be a fair and equal plan to offer secular education and that alone to all bodies of the community for he was well aware that there were such bodies who were conscientiously opposed to what was called secular education and who could not agree to accept it he therefore acknowledged existing and very palpable facts and endeavoured to establish a system which should satisfy the consciences of all the denominations but the nonconformists would not meet him on this ground they set up their shibboleth of undenominational education they made a fetish of their theory of state aid and they fought mr forrester long and ably and bitterly the liberal minister was compelled to accept more than once the aid of the conservative party for that party as a whole adopted the principle which insisted on religious instruction in every system of national education it more than once happened therefore that mr forster and mr gladstone found themselves appealing to the help of conservatives and of roman catholics against that dissenting body of englishmen who were usually the main support of the liberal party it happened too very unfortunately that at this time mr bright's health had so far given way as to compel him to seek complete rest from parliamentary duties his presence and his influence with the nonconformists might perhaps have tended to moderate their course of action and to reconcile them to the policy of the government even on the subject of national education but his voice was silent then and for long after the split between the government and the nonconformists became something like a complete severance many angry and bitter words were spoken in the house of commons on both sides on one occasion there was an almost absolute declaration on the part of mr gladstone and of mr miall 
a leading nonconformist, that they had parted company forever. The education bill was nevertheless a great success. The school boards became really valuable and powerful institutions, and the principle of the cumulative vote was tested for the first time in their elections. When school boards were first established in the great cities, their novelty and the evident importance of the work they had to do attracted to them some of the men of most commanding intellect and position. The London School Board had as its chairman, for instance, Lord Lawrence, the great Indian statesman, lately a viceroy, and for one of its leading members, Professor Huxley. An important peculiarity of the school boards, too, was the fact that they admitted women to the privileges of membership, and this admission was largely availed of. Women voted, proposed amendments, sat on committees, and in every way took their part of the duties of citizenship in the business of national education. When the novelty of the system wore off, some of the more eminent men gradually fell out of the work, but the school boards never failed to maintain a high and useful standard of membership. They began and continued to be strictly representative institutions, from the peer to the working man, from evangelical churchman to Catholic, from nonconformist to rationalist, from old-fashioned middle-class paterfamilias to eager young woman, shrilly representing the rights of her sex, they became a mirror of English public and business life. Most of their work even still remains to be done. The school system of the country needs many improvements and many relaxations, probably before it can be pronounced to be in fair working order. Its existence has in many parts of England brought thus far not peace but a sword. The struggle between the conscientious belief of one class of persons and the political dogma of another is still going on. Many attempts were made to induce the government to go as far as direct compulsory education, and much dissatisfaction was expressed at the refusal of ministers to venture on the adoption of such a principle. It is therefore not unreasonable to say that the national system of education has hardly yet had a fair and full trial. But so far as it has gone, there can be no doubt of the success it has achieved. No man exists who would, if he could, see England return to the condition of things which prevailed before the days of the Gladstone administration. But it must be owned that the Gladstone administration was weakened and not strengthened by its education scheme. One of the first symptoms of coming danger to Mr. Gladstone's government was found in the estrangement of the English nonconformists. They clung to their adopted principle with a genuine Puritan pertinacity. They admitted no respect of persons where that was concerned. Honest, conscientious, and narrow, they were ready to sacrifice any party and any minister rather than tolerate concession or compromise. End of section 28